0: I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. See, see. (laughs) It it looks something like you. Media podcast. I'm your host, John McKenzie, and I'm joined by George Starkey Midder, media and comms officer at Kick It Out, the anti discrimination organisation, and freelance producer at Talksport International. George, how's it going?
1: Very well, thanks. Glad to be here, John. Thanks for having me on again.
0: This week, I spoke to Katie Wyatt, the Telegraph's first dedicated women's football journalist, about her experiences of working at an outlet that's just rolled out the UK's first dedicated women's sports section. But before that, George and I are going to cover some of the important news stories from the Week in Football Media. And where better to start with that Telegraph women's sports section?
1: Absolutely so. Obviously, the Telegraph have announced that they have a dedicated women's sports section um, which is sort of the first of its kind, really, at a, a mainstream national paper. Um, obviously, you've had in the last year or so, the Telegraph themselves. have had Katie Wyatt as a women's football writer. You've had The Guardian with Susie Rack doing great coverage there. But in general, uh, this is the, the first kind of dedicated section. And it's just a very refreshing development that will be great to follow over the next year because you just think it's, it's quite a bold move from the Telegraph. What's very interesting for me is that they have decided not to kind of, You hide behind the excuses that are often given for not covering the women's game properly, which might be that, oh, there's not a market for it. We're not going to make enough money. They've gone full throated with it. They're not hiding behind any difficulties. It may be that they have to work out aspects of how they're going to cover it as they go along. You know, there's no template for them to go off, but I think it's certainly a positive development.
0: Yes, obviously this is a very positive piece of news and I don't want to sound negative by trying to put my finger on some of the, the issues that I am I see uh, emerging from out of this, but a few ideas that I've had about it are, one, what's the integration with the current sports section going to look like? Um, something that I talked to, to Katie about, so I don't want to expand on that too much here, but um, you will hear about that a little bit later in the show. But the other thing that maybe worries me is that we're seeing a huge migration to women's football at the moment with a lot of outlets moving over there. So um, Copper 90, we're going to talk about in a minute of decided to move over into the women's football area in, uh, and obviously all of these companies are moving in the wake of the fact that there's um, a World Cup happening this summer in France um, haters have made their TV channel dedicated to women's football, goal clicker doing a lot of work with, with women's football teams in the run up to the World Cup as well, so my question would be maybe this um, migration to women's football is being motivated by a feeling that there's maybe uh, a revenue pot there that's available and isn't being tapped into and I, I suppose my worry would be that maybe these outlets will all jump into that pot it will get saturated quite quickly and then when it's realized there isn't quite so much profit available there then uh, a lot of the coverage might drop away but that's me being very very cynical
1: I can understand that potential concern, but I, I don't see it myself being an issue because I do think that the kind of the generation of interest and the further coverage of the women's game isn't going to be a zero sum situation where, OK, well, now you've got five papers or five outlets covering it. You know, that's too many. If you look at men's football, men's sport, there are countless outlets, mainstream, new media, all, you know, all kinds of different ones covering the, uh, the men's game. And it doesn't mean that it's become as I mean it's a, it's a heavily saturated market football, but it it, uh, it hasn't meant that people are losing interest, and it ha- hasn't you know created any problems for lots of uh, even smaller outlets to to cover more niche aspects of the game. I think it can only be a positive that there are more and more outlets, as you said. There's Copper 90, um, there's Haters, there's also Benny Bonsu, who's now the head of women's sport. Forgive me, sport. And I think you know the way I see it is you know if you're uh, you know if you're a, a fan of women's sport or you're just sort of getting into it and you um, you start reading Benny Bonsu's coverage at Give Me Sport, that's only going to make you more interested and, and might lead you to end up reading uh, or watching some of Sam Miller's stuff at Haters. So mm. I, I don't see it as something that would, um, would necessarily be a hindrance in terms of the pot, as you say. Uh, I think it would only expand the market because more and more people are going to be interested in women's football and women's sport as a whole.
0: I think both of us are feeling very positive about this uh, and it should be highlighted that those are only picky criticisms from me on the side but I think we both looking forward to seeing that unfold and seeing how it how it pans out. Let's move on to Copper 90 so a, a big article in the Athletic this week the American news outlet looking at the Copper 90 project because last year we saw a number of Copper 90 US's front facing staff being laid off. And there was questions about whether or not we were seeing the sort of after effects of this pivot to video uh, scandal that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Very interesting article I recommend that you read, although it is behind a paywall. The CEO, Tom Thirlwall, has made it very clear that despite the fact that they've made these changes, he sees the, the Copper 90 project on course, whatever that means. But what it does mean is that they are... Going to be much less reliant on social media. The article begins by talking about the way that Twitter and YouTube uh, channels for Copper90 have been very quiet in the last couple of months or so. Quote from Tom Thurwell We count the advertising revenues that we get from YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as merely nice to have at the end of the year. It's a good place to build an audience, but it's a lousy place to build a business. So, what's the new business going to look like? Well, now they're turning their eye to making profit from things that you can actually sell. So, we already know that they do documentary material. Um, they'll be selling that more mainstream, but they are to move into things like uh, streetwear and uh, the, the most controversial aspect, I think, w- of this, which is market research. Very clear that they're going to be taking all of the data that they picked up from their um, work as a, an authentic fan media site and selling it to the highest bidder, which I think is quite a controversial move.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's one of the issues here is, is you know, I completely understand, you know, Copper 90 as The same with lots of sort of digital media outlets, you know, have to rethink strategy, will have to change direction at times. But you do wonder whether this move towards using data for brands and and, and sort of pivoting away from focusing on content creation, is it going to affect their their mission objective, which has always seemed to be, you know, by the fans for the fans? Is it now going to be sort of from the fans for the brands? I'm not really (laughs) sure whether... um, whether they'll be able to maintain that sort of level of authenticity that Copper has, has always had, you know, it started off very much as a YouTube platform. Uh, this seems like a move away from that. And you just wonder whether, um, whether they're going to start to, you know, I mean, I, it, even some of the content recently, it's obviously great, you know, the, the Pep Talks video and a few others, it, it's obviously great access. But is it, it is branded content the same level of authenticity that they set out to do you know back in 2012 where they launched and it was very much quite raw
0: no i totally agree with you there there's only so much you can flog an authentic horse right um and when it becomes obvious that you're only doing that for for money and and the fans have fallen out of the picture then it may be the case that the fans vote with their feet and go elsewhere there's also i think an aspect of which you know there's a change of tenor here they're moving from one mo to another mo and those sorts of things don't just happen easily there's every sense in which this could go very badly wrong for them because what they specialize in is generating that fan fan-based authentic material for for various uh, social media platforms and um there's, there's questions about whether or not that will work so we'll see what, what happens there. Well, I, mean, I
1: can understand why they want to move away from potentially from social media platforms too in terms of you know you know like um tom thurwell said about the fact that revenue um, fr- from those social media platforms has to be a bonus rather than something that, that you rely on because the way the algorithms work on social media platforms whether it's facebook twitter youtube they are constantly changing it's very difficult to develop a business a sustainable business model that relies on the kind of the whim of of, of these social media companies who are changing their own strategy you know year on year
0: yeah, and I think there's also should be said that um, obviously these sorts of companies, these startups are reliant on venture capitalism. And I think venture capitalists look at the industry and their projection models are based on a time when newspaper um, revenues were very, very profitable indeed. And I think what's happening is just an impatience on the part of a lot of venture capitalists. So that the sorts of uh, profits that have been seen in the past within the um, sports media are not being reproduced. So I guess another negative aspect of the, the industry that
1: we're in. For me, I think my one hope going forward is I appreciate there's going to be strategy changes, things like that, you know, organisations are going to have to reassess how they go about their business. But I just hope that there there are better ways that that these companies can approach it in terms of the staff they're laying off, because even from reading the article from some some of the former employees on Twitter, you can see that I think it left quite a sour taste in, in their mouth for a lot of them who'd worked really hard at helping develop the brand or some of the newer staff who may switched around their life, not taking up other, tu- up other opportunities. To work with copper, and then were laid off quite quickly, you know. So I do hope that if there are similar companies that have to do have to um, reassess their strategy, that they'll be more kind of careful about how they treat the staff who who are the the backbone of their companies. Moving on, I did really want to speak about the moyes Keen situation. Obviously, that's been in everyone's um, on everyone's timelines this week. I mean, I mean if you're not aware, obviously, moyes Keen was racially abused. By Cagliari fans throughout the game uh, against Juventus uh, midweek, um, and then actually scored the second goal around the 80th minute and, and sort of celebrated in front of the Cagliari fans. Not that he really he, he really did much. He just sort of stood there, said, oh, "You know, I'm here. You've been making monkey noises all game, and I, and I'm here just to you know celebrate in front and, and stick two fingers up." Really, but um, what's been interesting uh, since is obviously how it's played out in in the media afterwards. We've had Benucci highly criticised for really a number of poor responses initially in the post-match interview, then a bad Instagram post, uh, then another clarification, um, which none of them have really constituted an apology for what he said in terms of um, suggesting that Moise Keane shouldn't have made that celebration. Allegri himself also made some poorly worded comments. Um, It does turn out that uh, perhaps there, there was a bit of a creative translation done by some of the English outlets, which is uh, another aspect to consider. But his comments still weren't great. And then on the other uh, on the other side of things, you have Raheem Sterling using the power of social media uh, and using his platform to really draw attention to uh, to the matter and to criticise Benucci, which I thought was again, you know, really really demonstrates the kind of the leadership that he he's been taking um, in highlighting this issue um, throughout the season.
0: My- question to you would be I mean you obviously you are doing a lot of work with these kinds of incidents all the time. I wondered whether or not you think that we may start seeing a fetishising of racist incidents within the news media, particularly incidents that take place abroad. We live in a world where everyone knows that racism is wrong. Even if some people don't really realise what racism is, and 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 sometimes they're subconsciously doing it. So I think this sort of story is very easy to jump on. Uh, everyone feels good about themselves, and the uh, newspaper outlets actually garner a fair amount of traffic from it. So they'll be quite pleased about it. Do you think there's an element of that going on?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, there's no doubt that any story to do with racism in football, particularly you know when it when it's um, when it's a high profile one like that, particularly when it's like a you know it's it's a foreign league. It does huge numbers for these outlets. So you know whether the male genuinely care about um about you know racism in football, considering some of the treatment of Raheem Sterling in the last few years, whether they really care about um the cause. Uh, you know I have my doubts. So certainly I do think there there is an aspect of it there. I think it's very important that um the public football media are self-aware when covering, um, you know, Russian clubs, Italian clubs. It's very easy to kind of be quite smug about it and think, oh, look how bad it is over there. We may have our problems, but at least we're not, you know doing monkey noises for 90 minutes of a match and, and, and you know, mass racist chanting. But racist uh, abuse and racist behaviour of supporters is very much a problem in this country. So it, it's, it's important, of course, to call it out where we see it. If it's happening, you know, at a Russian club or an Italian club or anywhere across Europe, we have to call it out. But... We cannot sit on our, you know, rest on our laurels and be complacent about the situation in this country. And it will be interesting to see in the coming months how, you know, some of the coverage develops. that, you know, it's, it is very easy for papers to, 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 to kind of have the big headline about yet another incident in Eastern Europe, yet another incident in Italy. Whether they'll give the same coverage to England, I'm not sure. But I do think this season... Uh, there has been a shift because of someone like Sterling, who's been kind of shifting the conversation on this, on this issue. I do think there is becoming, there's a little bit more awareness in this country that it's still a huge problem.
0: Mm, And it's exciting to see social media being used in those positive ways by footballers, even though I think you would agree there's still more to be done.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, and and it's that recognition that, you know, from footballers, you know, you have a platform, you know, you are a publisher in a way that, you know, you Mm. have at the, in your phone, you have uh, a social media platform that has 10 million or 5 million or 1 million, whatever it is, followers. And so, you know, th- that will have a bigger reach than, than most newspapers. You can have an influence here and you just hope that there'll be more footballers to follow follow Sterling's lead and not just black footballers, white footballers, white footballers, too, who will begin to use their platform and start to influence the, the debate on a more regular basis.
0: Hmm we've got news from apple coming out this week a year ago apple bought up a service that's called texture now texture is a magazine subscription service uh, it was bought up by apple a year ago and this week they've rolled out apple news plus which as far as i can tell is exactly the same as texture but where texture only had 200 magazines that you could subscribe to on there there is now 300 magazines so uh, apple <laughs> Apple, really doing their homework there yeah it's uh the sort of thing that i think we're going to start seeing more regularly in this com- country the this doesn't roll out in the uk in later in the year but i'm sure these sorts of things are becoming becoming more and more available there's readly already which is a scandinavian company which does the same sort of thing um, and that's the fa- one of the fastest growing web startups in the europe at the moment i think the way that it works is you spend around nine nine ten dollars a month you get uh, access to 300 magazines like vogue national geographic magazine people l the wall street journal and los angeles times and you can actually buy a family share, a subscription as well, which gives you six logins. So this is basically the Netflix of written media.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a fascinating development. In a way, it feels like a, a, something that's been a long time coming, obviously, with Spotify and Netflix having been sort of firmly established and popularised for a few years, you have sort of been waiting, well, when's something like this going to happen for for news media? Because I feel like there are so many different outlets that people want to read and you can't get subscriptions to all of them. So this could really be um, something that genuinely transforms the media landscape. One or two concerns I would have myself you know, is how it's going to work and the extent to which Apple may have the power to, you know, influence the editorial line of an outlet that's on their platform. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, someone at Apple will have a direct line to a journalist at a paper and say, you need to write this story. But, you know, as a company overseeing all of this, you know, if they know that certain uh, stories from certain outlets are getting more hits Will they be able to lean on that outlet to say that you need to be producing more stories like that? What about Apple themselves? Will they allow kind of negative coverage of the uh, of the company to appear on their subscription platform? Mm. So these are all questions that I don't know the answers to, but are quite important because this could easily end up being something that, that goes quite wrong.
0: Another thing as well, the reason why we're so hopeful of the future of subscription platforms like this is because the ad revenue route has just fallen to pieces. And the reason why that's fallen to pieces is because of big companies like Facebook, Twitter, etc., Instagram. All of these, all of these outlets uh, are picking up, hoovering up all of the profits. And so my worry would be, well, how much of that profit will actually end up popping back into the pockets of the outlets who are involved in Apple News+. Plus?
1: Absolutely. These are all things I guess we'll find out in the coming months. We could look back in a year or two and think, "Wow, this is this is genuinely been transformative. This has been a huge positive for the media because you've actually got hundreds, thousands of people now paying on a monthly basis for their that their media consumption. Because you and I, I'm sure, are part of the problem in that we do not pay for anywhere near the level of media we consume. But it is another step towards one major company having you know having a lot of power you know at their fingertips and it, it it does concern me in the longer term one you know one company having such a huge influence over a huge section of the media. So other things of note in the news
0: this week Guardian newspaper have announced a young sports writer of the year competition that is running at the moment you can find out the details on their website The Economist announced that they spent £50 million on advertising this year in a bid to evolve into the internet age Uh, and now the majority of their revenue is coming from subscriptions rather than ad revenue we've seen news that a publisher has driven 400,000 subscriptions and 5 million page views by using the text platform WhatsApp 263 chat in Zimbabwe have been sending essentially news bulletins through whatsapp and so there's questions about whether or not whatsapp could be publishing's next frontier and then finally it was announced this week that six in ten snapchat and instagram users visit the site daily so i'm sure we'll start seeing these sorts of outlets being used more regularly within the sports media and that's it for me and george this week but do stay around to listen to my interview with katie wyatt which is coming up just after this I'm joined today by Katie Wyatt, women's football reporter at the Daily Telegraph. Katie Hading.
2: Hi, are you okay?
0: I'm good, yeah. It's good to finally talk. It's been uh, <laughs> a long time. We've known each other sort of on and off around the, the fringes of the internet, but we've never really had a proper chat, so I'm excited to have a conversation. Cool. I want to talk about your time at the Telegraph. You started there in October last year, right? Mm hmm. How's it been going? Have you been enjoying yourself?
2: Yeah, I have. Um, Some parts of it have surprised me actually by just how um, intense they have been and then other parts of it. Um, I've been surprised by sort of how well I've taken over apart So it's been a constant learning curve because obviously it's something that I, it's my first full time job. Um, mm. but yeah, in the main everyone's really helpful and everyone's really nice. And there are some things that we're learning about women's sport of what works and what doesn't work, and then mm. some things that um I've thought wouldn't work that have worked, or I thought would be really good that haven't. So it's just a constant learning curve for all of us, really. But everyone's really helpful and enthusiastic. So yeah.
0: So, what would you say that those things are that you've you found came naturally, and then those things that you said maybe been a bit more of a of a learning curve?
2: Um, I think. Because for me, I'd never been travelling before I got this job where really. I didn't, never had the chance to travel when I was a student. So went obviously going to America for um, 10 days to do the She Believes, going to Austria for the England game, doing the World Cup draw in France, doing the Chelsea PSG game. There were things that I didn't really know what to expect that I thought would be really, really dreadful. And then in reality, it's just a case of Google Maps and you're right. Um, so... That sounds a really obvious point to anyone that's been travelling. So there's that side of it. Um, And there's stuff that sort of surprised me is just how hard everyone works, because you kind of hear, oh, you're never off duty or whatever, but you don't realise how just how hard a lot of the people worked on the desk and how long the hours are and how um, committed everybody is to build the contacts and get the stories and things like that. So that's the thing that surprised me, just how kind of demanding it can be at times. Um, And also, because I obviously didn't do a, a journalism degree, which we'll probably get onto later, is journalism law and what you can and can't print and stuff um which i had no understanding of and then having done the courses since i'm kind of like oh yeah that's why we weren't allowed to write that thing (laughs) so that's the um those have been the big ones
0: well let's talk about the traveling then you said you, you went to america you were there for 10 days when you're actually traveling like that how much of your time is spent working how much how much time is down how much time do you have to fill yourself how, how did you find that experience of being in a place where you're there exclusively just to to write about one thing uh, which isn't happening all the time
2: i mean i kind of talked to a lot of the other writers at our paper about this because i at first found it very weird that they're away for you're away for that amount of time and you have a lot of I say a lot you have a reasonable amount of dead time where you can travel and see things and I at first felt really really guilty about that that I was allegedly working and I was allowed to go and off and do other things (laughs) when whatever it was was done so you would have two or three press conferences a week and then it was quite interesting with the games were back to back so you had the other two teams playing Either side of the England game, um. So in terms of sort of dead time, if you got there in time for the first game or you stayed for the second game, then there wasn't, you know, that took up quite a fair chunk of your day. But then there's a lot of that time is like the jet lag wasn't a big thing for me for arriving there, but it was when I first got home. I was just completely out of it for two or three days. But um, a lot of that is the travelling between the connecting flights between the different states, cause it was um it was not Pennsylvania it was Philadelphia National Tampa Um so there was a lot of that but in, yeah so it was kind of difficult at first to get used to that once you filed from the press conference and if you're on top of everything you can go off and do your own things Um but at the same time it was also you sort of realize that you're away from home you don't have any of your home comforts and everything and that's why they allow you to go and do that to sort of make up for everything that you're missing when you're away from home as well so yeah it's, it works both ways.
0: Okay, so what would you say outside of the travelling experiences you've had, what's your general weekly schedule looking like? Is there, is there a set timetable to it or is it very much as and when things come up?
2: A little bit of both. So at the moment with the Women in Sport launch, the Telegraph Women Sport um, thing that we just launched is very full on. Um, so a lot of, at the moment, it's very, very busy with lots of, it's funny that that coincided with the Barclays Super League launch and Chelsea being in the Champions League. So the last two or three weeks have been very relentless stuff on the road. And obviously now the Lionesses are playing, um, all over England and they're going to have press conferences and training camps and things. So at the moment, these last two or three weeks has been very relentless days on the road, um, and lots of time on trains and, and getting about places and stuff like that. Um, But how it works is that I will send them a schedule of just Monday Monday to Sunday and this is what I'm doing on these days um, and this is where I'm going to be. And then to a certain extent that will be influenced by them. They might say, oh, we want you to speak to this person or have you seen this? Can you follow this up or have you thought about doing this? But largely it's I think because um, women's sport is is kind of a new one women's football is a new one for a lot of people on the desk a lot of it's led by me so a lot of time they will ring up and say can you follow this up or what do you think of this idea but most of the time it will be me saying i think we should do a feature on this person or i've spoken to whoever or um i'm going to go off and write this article um, and then we just have a discussion about how that will work and what kind of word count they want and stuff like that so it's a bit, little bit both um kind of a dialogue from either side really but then it just depends massively Um, as to how whether you're spending the week um, working from home which comes with its own challenges or if you're spending the week um, on the road getting about doing games being at press conferences and stuff so it's two different sort of working styles with two different sets of challenges with both of them
0: how do you enjoy the fact that you have the chance to do very much what you like in terms of the feature stuff is it a dream job in that regard
2: Uh, I think so, yeah, because I mean, this was something that we've had a lot of, obviously, where trying to work out now how you cover women's sport because no one has done. Uh, I've made a commitment of the size of what the Telegraph have made with the Telegraph women's sport thing. And we've had a lot of discussions because it's quite a debate about just a debate in general, not necessarily with us, but just a general societal debate about, um, do you cover women's sport exactly the same as you cover men's sport? So do you do quotes, pizzas, transfer stories, um, tactical analysis, or do you have to do it a more of a lifestyle way? Um, and are you appealing to then people who don't necessarily read, um, sports pages usually or don't? play a sport or are you trying to branch out into something else and I think there's space for both I don't think we're honestly at the place yet where we can kind of um, have the, the appetite for the expected goals and the analysis and the money shy of analysis um, in women's sport football yet yeah, I don't think we're at the place where you hear a few transfer stories but unless it's something like Tony Duggan going to Barcelona or it was something affecting someone like Steph or, or Jordan Nobbs or one of the big stars it's not something that Is necessarily is followed with the same ferocity as it is in the men's game so there are a lot of big differences there but for me I think what um, I sort of felt very strongly from the beginning and a lot of people kind of echoed to me um, around the time of me having interviews and stuff was that um, you've got to kind of um, go for the human interest bit because the way that women's Football is at the moment is that you're only <clears throat> going to grab people if they know these players' stories. So we saw that with the World Cup in Canada in 2015, part of the reason, as well as the team being so successful, that everybody got attached to these players was that they could really identify with and admire. Karen Carney talking about her depression, Frank Kirby talking about her grief after her mum died, um, Laura Bassett's own goal, Katie Chapman talking about her children, Casey Stoney and, and her um, partner talking about their children so it's those human interest stories that you've really got to push out and i think that's where um the women's game works quite well is that access is not as hard as it is to combine the men's game so you'll get players who are very frank about things like mental illness or white privilege or um being a refugee or whatever those human interest stories are that you find and you can dig out and um, that there are players that are very articulate and very I'm um, free to have those conversations which I think works really really well Um so that's the thing it's been finding these stories whether that is something that's a bit quirky like the um, Rosie and Molly who are the twins that I interviewed last week or whether it's something like Danielle Carter where it's a serious story about her doing her ACL but then she can be very honest about how she feels and what happened in that process so it's about kind of just knowing how you're taking something that's a bit niche or people that um, and athletes that maybe the general population don't know about and how you can then extrapolate that into something that they're willing to read and that will be of interest to them
0: Before you were at the Telegraph you did a fair amount of work in I think particularly the local medias and you were covering the men's game as well what difference have you noticed between the way that the, the media works in the women's game compared to the men's game you've said already it's obviously a lot easier to get access and um, the women's game is sort of in its infancy in that regard so do you find a real difference between the way that men and women speak about the game or how they even just the the media training that they've had and how that impacts on your job
2: yeah I mean it's difficult because I mean I the bulk of male footballers that I dealt with were at Bradford the most intense relationships I had but then the the one I would do sort of occasional interviews with some random Carlisle player or something like that when I was at the BBC, Um for whatever reason they weren't noteworthy that week, um, and it depends like in the EFL it's not as consistent as it is I imagine it would be in the Premier League it varies massively from kind of club to club whether they offer media training whether press officers want to sit in um whether they're happy to do it over the phone or in person so that's the um that there's been i don't know i wouldn't be able to sort of say whether it's standardized across the efl um in the women's football you get massive variations of clubs where they will want a press officer to sit in or players will be media trained and then clubs where they're just happy for you to take the play off for a coffee one afternoon and have a chat there with no press officer so it's a very um different thing um i think yeah i think one of the weirdest ones though is something that Molly Hudson's written, tweeted about quite a lot. Is that in the in the women's game you get a lot of um, people that kind of dip in and out of women's football, which is understandable to a large extent because you can't expect your big chief football writers to cover women's football every week because the demand for them is going to be on covering the big men's clubs. But some of these journalists you get, not just at national papers, but who just do not cover the women's game regularly, will happily turn up, do an interview, and then say to the rest of us, oh, who's that? Who does she play for? (laughs) And there's no kind of even attempt to disguise it. It's not like, oh, how do you spell her last name? Or anything that would just vaguely kind of cover it. It's just sometimes I think there's there's almost like a pride in not knowing who it is. And that's the big thing that I've noticed is that At Bradford, obviously, they had a lot of cup runs and you would get a lot of national journalists coming down to interview the players on FA Cup weekend and stuff. And they wouldn't necessarily know these players or know their stories, but they'd have done the research. Whereas women's football, sometimes I think certain journalists exhibit a bit of an arrogance about they're almost proud to not know who the players are because women's football's beneath them and I don't need to know that. And I just think it's a base level of respect of if you're going to cover someone's then you should have done that research. And that's the something that I know Molly's talked about quite a lot, Molly Hudson from the Times. Um, and it's just something that I've sort of noticed is starting to creep in a little bit and I'm like, oof, I wouldn't have said that. But yeah, that's a, that's a big one.
0: In this vein I mentioned that I'd seen a tweet the other day from Chris Deely at, at 90 Men, he was having a conversation with Sophie Lawson, who does a lot of stuff for Vavil. Yeah, and they were talking about the fact that there is this real positivity about the coverage of women's sport at the moment. Um, but he was he was sort of raising a question whether or not there's uh, this sort of didn't they do well attitude around a, a lot of what's going on obviously women's sport is at a really interesting juncture anyway it does feel as though we're on the cusp of, of something big happening we're seeing a lot of media outlets looking to to increase their coverage of the women's game and particularly in in the run-up to the world cup um copper 90 in particular i think has made a has made a big move in that direction so i just wondered how do you feel about that didn't they do well attitude which is sort of perhaps it's almost a little bit patronizing edge to it where it's suggesting oh you know we know that men's sports is the one but it's good to see these other women's sports doing well
2: um yeah i think it's a, a 50 51 because my biggest not bug there but worry is that when major tournaments come round, you have people that are very keen to pedal the women's football is so healthy isn't women's football brilliant isn't it in a better place than it's ever been narrative and um the issue with that is it's very easy to kind of get caught up in it because you look at the attendances in spain and italy um you look at odds having the Barclays deal is a massive massive move Chelsea being in the semi-final of the Champions League is is a huge thing and um, the women's world cup it might be the year that it really really does take off and then it's very easy for everyone on the outside to look at that and go wow that's amazing and then you sort of forget that um with women's football there are loads of issues about sustainability about crowds and attendances week on week about the relationship that it has with men's football in terms of the funding that it gets and clubs being reliant on men's clubs to fund them and um, the financial commitment that's required to run a women's team now. So you see clubs like Bristol, Doncaster, not Bristol, Yorville, um, Doncaster, Bells um, fold and and drop out divisions and really struggle um, and, and whether that relentless pace of improvement is for getting something important um, in its drive to kind of be the, the sport that it's becoming. So there's a lot of other issues around it that... Um, you know, Players playing without insurance, for example, is a massive one and not being supported through major injuries. Um, it's clubs that are kind of an arm of massive men's Premier League or championship clubs. So there's loads and loads of issues around it that sometimes I think we forget to interrogate when we get very caught up in how healthy women's football is, allegedly. Um So that's the difficult thing, because if you look at the Women's World Cup in the summer, if we're really going to grow the game over a year after that, we have to be very aware that there are things that are getting in the way of that and we have to be ready to kind of interrogate those just as much as we praise the game for all the other good things that are going on too Um, so that would be the worry for me I wouldn't necessarily be able to say whether there is a patronising attitude of oh isn't it great that they're doing this or are we able to sort of we're hearing these women's stories at last or whatever Um, because that's not necessarily something that I personally uh, that's not a view that I personally hold Um, so that's difficult for me to say but um, that's the one big thing for me is that if we are going to Um, grow the game and give it the the proper coverage and the proper um, kind of foundations for it to be successful after the World Cup next year is that you're going to have to move the conversation on from how healthy women's sport is and look at all the other things that are getting in the way of it as well
0: Well that's as good a time as any to talk about Telegraph Women's Sport which was announced earlier this month various personalities are going to be involved Anna Kessel the respected journalist and co-founder of Women in Football and Vicky Hodges taking uh, roles in the editorial side of things there tell us a little bit about how that's looked for you obviously you were brought in on the sort of track towards this being unveiled what's it been like to see it it unfold and what does it look like from your end
2: yeah it's been a bit it's something that we're all still kind of working out how it, what it wins for me day to day because sometimes I report to the um, not still dated I report to the normal kind of news desk, but it just means that I'm having conversations with people who are very. Um, specifically women's sport orientated and understand the nuances of it a little bit more day to day as well. Um, so it's interesting because Anna comes up with so many ideas and comes has got so many contacts. So the volume of kind of um, contact that I have with people that really, really get women's sport has increased. But then the contact that I have with the people on the desk that do all the other sports has not really decreased either. So I think logistically, some of that we're still working out um, how that works because it's not like they do a lot of people have said to us oh running a women's sports section is a bad thing because you're just kind of chucking it off to one side and it's not really like that it doesn't really work like that in practice um it's just about the volume of the coverage and having dedicated channels for those sports so we've got a space for the things that wouldn't necessarily make it into the paper otherwise or wouldn't necessarily be covered otherwise because they're considered a minority sport or because maybe you've got a lot of transfer news on that day or whatever um so that's just it's not necess- it's not just putting it in a box or branching it off to one side which is something that's been really frustrating for us to have to sort of explain um to everybody sometimes but yeah it's um it's just a really exciting thing to be a part of because I think the commitment that they've made in terms of obviously getting Jordan Nobbs, Maggie Alfonsi was already on board but Judy Murray and things like that um, it's just a really unprecedented commitment with the hiring two women's new dedicated women's sports reporters and having people in the building who really really know their stuff and who really want to push it and champion it and are passionate about it is really important because you know there are so many papers where I've spoken to women's sport reporters and they say that you're kind of Fighting against the tide, and there's an attitude of should we even cover this, or should we send someone to do that, saying, Oh, we're not going to fund that event. Whereas we're very lucky at the telegraph where they are willing to. Um, take risks and fund those things and understand the importance of, of having a sports section that actually sets the agenda rather than just mirrors it all the time because people say oh you know why, why are you even covering women's sport who cares about it when you look at actually have we even given people the opportunity to care about it because we've just neglected it for years and years so that's the exciting thing that it's something that no one in the industry has done before which comes with its own um challenges but at the same time it's something that's very exciting to be at the in the middle of something that's probably going to set the tone and that other papers are going to want to follow as well i think
0: yeah you've mentioned already that you've been in conversations about how do you develop the format of women's sports coverage particularly because you're saying you know it doesn't really pour over necessarily that well from the, from the men's game if there isn't the same emphasis on things like transfer rumors or you, you've mentioned the analytics side of things as well and and looking at the various data avenues that you could take in that respect but how many conversations are you guys having uh, at the moment about what the the sort of remit for telegraph women's sport is is it is it something that is is consciously being done by by everyone on the ground or is it is that something that's happening at the higher level
2: um, I won't be able to speak for the higher level because lots of editorial meetings go on, but I think it's a constant thing that we're just constantly every day thinking about. So one of the massive things that we've just started doing yesterday, they sent one of our reporters, Molly, off to do um, a fitness session thing one of the where uh, with a load of jockeys to find out just how fit you have to be to be a professional um, horse rider person. I'm not into horse riding, <laughs> so I wouldn't know the proper term. Um, and... Yeah, and so and and doing that on an Instagram story as well as an article. So and, and I've done stuff where it, we've taken video facilities down and and done video features and interviews and stuff, which is all new to me because we never would have done that before. So um some of that's just a discussion that we have as kind of a writers group with Anna and Vicky about would this work well for this or would this be a different approach because it's stuff that we've never done before i mean i'm terrible at instagram i just find it really difficult so an instagram story would be a proper thing that i'd have to sit down and learn to do um so it's just a comp- you know looking at different ways like that of how you're using social to engage an audience that wouldn't necessarily maybe go out and pick up the telegraph or wouldn't necessarily think that women's sport is for them um, so there's that's a constant thing that we just a discussion that we have all the time every single day about how what's the best angle to approach this with um, but we have had meetings and things where we've kind of looked at longer term ideas or what the values um, are that we want to project and some of that is so obviously we've, we've launched the um, women in sport campaign and some of that came from higher up but also there was a dialogue of us about what do you think um, of these aims or what aims would you like to see or where we kind of got to challenge them and say oh, I do like this or oh, I don't like this and um, so it's sort of a little bit of both at the moment um, coming back both ways um, and some of that is how are we going to engage women who don't necessarily um, engage with sport usually? And some of that is Instagram stories, but also that's about the stories that we put in our supplement and on the sports pages of do we have to have sections dedicated to women who wouldn't normally try um, sport or wouldn't normally be into it? How can we make sure that they see the sports for them as well? So it's a whole different um set of conversations that we have but it's something that comes from above but also something that we're asked to think about and that we end up discussing with every little thing that we do really
0: I'd like to talk to you about style because I think you, you've made it clear in that in answer that you like to work with words uh, <coughs> rather than <laughs> Instagram. Let's talk a little bit about style. You're someone who writes well. Um, you have a particularly stylized approach that I think is, is maybe a little bit unusual um, in, in beat journalism, but you're, I guess you're, you're sort of in, in between those, those two things. You're doing beat stuff, but you're also doing feature stuff, so... Uh, I was wondering how much you thought about writing as an art or craft. Is it something that you consciously are aware of as you're writing? I mean, obviously everyone's aware of their writing styles as they're writing, but is it something that you take particular care over at all?
2: Yeah, I think this goes back to when I was, because I started writing my route into journalism was I did blogs about Bradford, um, the club that I support in my bedroom when I was kind of 14, 15, 16 um, and at the time I did that for a blog called a Post which is still around and still really good coverage of Bradford and then there was a few writers there at the time that I really, really admired and one of them was Alex Scott who's not the Alex Scott who's, <laughs> who's just, uh, the women's footballer but just my friend Alex Scott from Bradford um, who really, really writes well and I think genuinely believe that he, if he'd have gone into football journalism he could have kind of cut it up with anybody um, in terms of just as a as a pure sports writer and um, The way that he was writing about this League 2 club doing these amazing things, beating Arsenal, Chelsea, going to Wembley and stuff was just unbelievable. And I think when I was 14, 15 and read his stuff for the first time and um, was sort of like, oh, that's what you can do with football writing and football writing itself, just writing or even the sport can really make you cry and really move you. And here he's, and he's bringing in this philosophy, he's bringing in Simpsons references and it just felt like a massive eye-opener to me in terms of, wow, that's what I want to do and that's what I can um, try and emulate and I've never told him this actually <laughs> so if you listen to this you will find out for the first time but yeah and that was a, and a few other writers at the time on that site so for me being 14, 15 even from that age I was constantly thinking how can I be better how can I emulate this what do I not like about this and what do I like and then That wasn't just with Alex, but that was obviously when I was reading stuff like The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph, all these um, other newspapers and seeing what stuff I liked and what I didn't, what things I wanted to try and emulate. So that was a a process, whereas from being very young, I've automatically thought about it. Um, And then sometimes that's been a case of, you know, as I've got older, I've been... Braver enough to try certain things and I've learned and developed and even you know working at the BBC doing the live text there that there are certain demands on you doing the live text and um, the way that you describe certain things the way that you're allowed to be um, jokey and take the mick out of stuff um it's changed how I've been as a writer so my editor at the BBC Steve always used to have a joke with me about how I'd be watching football and then a Looney Tunes reference would just pop into my head <laughs> and make its way into the live text and stuff and that's kind of something that I've um it's only kind of come in the last year or so, but that I managed to keep. So I think it is something that I've always thought about um, since being quite young. Um, and it's the same thing that we always improve. But I think if you go, you know, everyone's uh, writing voice improves and changes, even if you go read some of the big Football writers from 10, 15 years ago, it's a massive, massive difference. And I think that's the case of if you read some of my earliest Bradford pieces to the later Bradford pieces, there'll be a huge, huge difference. So that site was particularly the playground for where I kind of got um, better as a writer and really thought about what works and what didn't. And then come into a paper where there are very tight word counts and you've got to write to deadlines and stuff like that has been another learning curve as well to do it in a slightly different way so it's a constant thing that i won't say i think about it as consciously now but it's definitely something that over the years i've worked at and developed it hasn't just kind of um happened overnight
0: do you still read other journalists with an eye to seeing how they're writing stylistically is it do you keep up with with the, the industry in that regard
2: Yeah, all the time. And we all do. um, Because I mean, I get messages from people who work in men's football and journalists that I've admired for ages saying, oh, I thought this about this piece that you did, or I found that interesting or whatever. And uh, it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, they read it. (laughs) So it's a little bit weird in that sense. But everybody reads everyone else's stuff and keeps an eye on everyone else's stuff. Um, so I'm constantly learning and it's nice as well because I will for years as a kid I read Sam Wallace, Paul Heywood, Jonathan Liu and stuff and now I can just pick up the phone and ring them or text them and just say what would your advice be on this kind of thing um, but it's something that I constantly we all do it um, so I think it's, it's half of it is reading other people's stuff as much as it is writing your own um, so yeah it's definitely something that we all do.
0: You've mentioned word counts and deadlines. How do you think that that experience of writing within those strictures, how do you think that's impacted on your own writing?
2: I'm not sure. It's hard to say, really, because, I mean, it feels very, because I've done it for sort of six months, um, and that's all I've done for six months match report-wise. You don't do, you know, when I used to write Bradford blogs, I would do the notes on my phone or write them down and then come home and type it up in an hour and then kind of have it done um, by then. And then that's just not how it works, that you... Um, It can be a strange experience sometimes. The weirdest one was in America um, because of the way that the print deadlines are in um, England and given the massive, massive time difference was that you had to write something and have it written by 85 minutes. So you had to submit the final thing before half-time, was it before it was even full-time? And then you had to, if there were any red cards or yellow cards in that time, they'd add them back at base um, and you had to have done you had to have the sort of bulk of it written by halftime with a top and tail um on 85 minutes so that was a really different experience because that's a little bit more fragmented um whereas in england usually um i'm usually if i can if something happens and i think oh that's a good thing to go in on i'm usually all right um and then you because it just sort of grabs you and then you're like oh yeah i'll thread it around that or that's what i'll hang it off of um so that's how I've always done it. Whether that's the right way to do it, I'm not sure, but it gets done on time, which is the main thing. Um, so yeah, that's how it is. It can be a little bit strange at first. Um, I think it's more the, the the first one that I did was more the pressure of it because I don't on the whistles and stuff for national papers before but it's always the the first few times you're like oh my gosh what if i there's a last minute goal or how am i going to get 800 words or sometimes if a game's particularly bland you think i've got to get 400 words 600 words out of this and i'm just not going to be able to do it um but yeah so it's kind of just knowing that um that if there's something happens i can hang it off of that and if not what's the solution i'll have to get around that so it's a little bit um a little bit kind of brings both of them together in that sense
0: I'm also interested in the editorial process. Obviously, when it comes to on-the-whistle reporting, there's not really a huge window for for that sort of stuff. But you do, as we've said, a lot of feature writing. How much editorial does that go through? Do you get edits sent back to you? Do you get the chance to rework the edits at all?
2: Um, It depends what it is. Um, So sometimes if... There's an interview, it depends. I mean, one, it depends on who's editing. So sometimes they might say, I'm going to make this change, or what do you think of this, or I've switched this bit around, what do you think? Sometimes you might just go, and depending on how busy they are, they might just go ahead and make the changes. Um, sometimes it depends as well if it's an important interview or something that's got to be legal a few times, there'll probably be a lot more dialogue with it. Um, whereas if it's a match report and it's over the word count, or they've suddenly got less space, they'll probably just do it. Um, so it depends in that sense. I'm quite lucky in that mostly my stuff doesn't get changed that much um the only it's kind of usually the if it's a big feature thing the email you just say oh, we've taken this out so i once put a monsters inc reference in and they were like we don't think people will get that so we took that <laughs> out uh which was the lowest point in my career no i'm joking um so yeah it's a little bit of it's a, it just depends entirely on what it is and, and what the um story is and who's doing it and there's all different ways of and stuff that determines how that is but it's not massively it's never really pick something up and be like oh that's miles away from what i wrote so i'm quite lucky in that sense
0: i am shocked that monsters inc isn't considered to be within the purview of the <laughs> telegraph readership i must admit you already mentioned that you started out writing writing blogs for with the post was it at that point that you decided to go into journalism and how did you then sort of plot your career from there on
2: Yeah, I think I was about 16 or 17 when I was like, yeah, I really want to do journalism. Um, Because before it was just something that I wrote, a blog in my bedroom or whatever. But then from that age, it started to get a little bit more. Yeah, that's probably what I want to do when I leave uni. Um, And I did an English degree. um, So I I was very conscious that I didn't want to go into do a journalism degree because I sort of felt, I'm not really sure what my thought process was at the time, but I think English was my favourite subject at school. And I think I'd kind of felt that with a journalism degree you could always do that in one year and do a conversion or you could always do enough work experience to pick up certain skills whereas with an English degree you'd sort of have a certain um, lens on on things and be taught to think about things quite critically in a different way and you just get a completely different set of skills and be a bit more balanced and I think I always knew intuitively that a lot of the people at national papers hadn't necessarily done um, journalism degree straight off, and that was proven right because I know Sam Wallace did English, Sam Dean did history, Luke Edwards did history, Jonathan Lee did history. So it's, um, yeah, all those kind of art subjects where you're taught to interrogate stuff and analyze stuff and think about big concepts and how stuff fits into the world and that's been really useful with i mean when raheem sterling talks about racism for example the any luco thing you've got set frameworks where you can think okay how does this fit into that or yeah i agree with you and you can sort of understand how it's sort, and you can kind of get into the nuances of the debate fairly easily because of how much you've been challenged at university um but then obviously the downside to that is I didn't have, before I came to the Telegraph, any kind of media law training. Um, it's only when I've done sort of workshops um, at the, in the office and stuff that I can think, oh, yeah, that's why we weren't allowed to do that or that's how you you've got to do that. Um, so that's been a massive, massive learning curve for me is there are certain things that I think will be more natural to you if you've got a journalism degree than they are to me. So I think there's pros and cons to both sides of it. Um, but yeah, but and then just in terms of actually forging a career, um I was very lucky in that when I was I always had the width of a post stuff, so the route that I went down was to build relationships with people at Bradford. Um that are still quite helpful relationships to have now. Um and that was that yeah, that was a big thing. And then as well I did something called the kick off scheme, which is a work experience scheme at the BBC for eight weeks in the summer, I think it might have been not down to six now, Um, but where you're with local radio for eight weeks and you're doing press conferences, you're going out, you're finding stories and and you're interviewing players and managers and things like that and um, it was a really exciting season because it was Gary Monk's season when Leeds only got promoted, it was the season Huddersfield went up to the Premier League Bradford just missed out in the playoffs so it was a really good season to do that scheme and then that led to stuff at BBC Sport and that led to stuff at local radio for a bit longer term for all the time i was at uni there were my student jobs so i was really lucky in that sense
0: well i've taken up way too much of your time <laughs> already but i always end with a question about the future so i was just wondering what you think the future of women's journalism will be or journalism in general and how you see yourself fitting into that future
2: oh it's really hard to say because <laughs> um it just that's what we know what is massively hard to say because i mean on the one hand, you've got the whole there's a massive debate about are there even going to be any newspapers in 10, 15, 30 years' time, um, which, you know, people have varying opinions on. Um, but also with this women's sports stuff that we're doing is so unprecedented and so different um, that we can't really see how it's going to go in six months, never mind how it's going to go in, in kind of 10 years. So that's a really, really difficult one for me to answer. Um, but in terms of, I mean, writing about sport, so I've done broadcast stuff before, but writing about sport is really where my passion lies and stuff like that. Um but yeah it's a massive thing. I don't kind of try not to look too too far ahead and think about it and worry about it. I just try and do the best stuff that I can. I know it's not massively cliche, but the best stuff that I can do each week because I just think it's sometimes it's so draining. You think, oh my gosh, I don't know how people do this for forty years. Whereas other times you kind of think, Oh yeah, I can do this and I've got it and and it's just a massive um learning curve all the time. So it's never something I sit there and think, oh I want to have achieved well, no, I've got sort of little targets and stuff, but they're not, it's never something that I think, oh yeah, is this what the industry going to look like or whatever? Because I think you've just sort of got to enjoy the fact that we're in I'm at a paper at the moment with a nice sort of boom moment for women's sport and stuff and just seeing where that leads. If that's not sitting on the fence too much and avoiding the question. You no,
0: know, that's a totally understandable answer, but thank you so much for, for coming on today. No problem. What's the best way for people to follow you? Best way for the people to read your work?
2: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Katie, Wyatt, Katie with an I-E and then T because everyone thinks it's just W-Y, which is honestly the number of press conferences I go to when I get a tag that's W-Y, and I'm just like...
0: Ugh. I noticed yesterday that 442 had an interview with Pablo Hernandez, with Andy Murray, the, the journalist, and they tagged Andy Murray, the tennis player, <laughs> then, so
2: telegraph women's sport it's got its own dedicated to it handle which is women's sport and that's got all of the the coverage on there from however many uh, weeks we've been doing this
0: thank you so much for coming on today
2: no problem thank you
0: Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie, George Starkey-Midder and Katie Wyatt. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.